We have the privilege of having uh, Tim Bullington with us uh, again this morning. We introduced him um, last month or the month before, and so we're grateful to, to have Tim and Cindy with us again. Uh, Tim and I are um, working together uh, with the church plant down in uh, Wilkes County, so things continue to proceed there, and we're glad to have our brother with us. Uh, before he comes, uh, let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you for the words of this last song, reminding us how holy you are and how worthy you are to receive our praise. Father, how exciting it is to see the words of your scriptures that you are the one who conquered all things, that the promised one came and he died and he rose again and is coming back. And thank you for this gospel. Lord, I pray that uh, as we meet together that you would encourage our hearts, that you would uh, cause your word to bear fruit in and through us. Father, we thank you um, that you are not just doing this in us, but in all your people around the world. We lift up other churches, Lord, uh, in our um, association of churches through RBNet, that, Lord, you would uh, be with them and encourage them. Father, we lift up Grace Baptist in Castle Woods down in Mississippi, that you would be with them this morning as they gather together, that you would give them uh, great mercy and grace as they seek to minister to their community. Father, we thank you for your work uh, within uh, this network and seeing all that you are doing in it. We lift up the General Assembly to you next month, that, Lord, you would uh, meet with us, and, Lord, that you would work in and through your churches Thank you for those new churches that are joining the network this year, and we're thankful for that. Lord, we also pray for local churches in this area. We lift up Friendship Baptist Church to you this morning. We thank you for them and your work amongst them. Lord, that you would continue uh, your um, great work uh, in sanctifying them and using them in this community as well. Uh, we just ask for your graces upon them this morning. Lord, we lift up the persecuted church this morning as well. We know that in many lands, uh, your gospel is, is, um, at, uh, is at war against the powers of darkness, and yet at the same time, governments come down hard upon Christians and your word being spread. And so, Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters uh, in Kenya today. Uh, we thank you for that country, and although um, it is uh, relatively more free than other countries in on the African continent. We do pray that your word would abound, that, Lord, you would uh, continue to um, have your word proclaimed, that you would strengthen the churches uh, in Kenya, and, Father, that you would continue um, just your, your faithful proclamation through your servants as uh, your word uh, continues to uh, renew that continent. And, Father, we ask for your help there. Lord, we lift up our world, and uh, we know that there's many trouble in many places, and of course, the Ukraine crisis, we continue to lift that to you, that, Lord, you would strengthen uh, your churches in around uh, that area, both in Russia and in Ukraine, that your people would minister in the time of great turmoil there, that, God, you would use these things to accomplish your purposes, and, uh, Lord, that we would trust you in the midst of all that. Lord, we lift up trouble in other places uh, like Burma and places where um, your uh, church is being uh, slaughtered, uh, but also innocent civilians 
And Father, we pray for your grace there, that you would judge evil, that we would trust your justice and in your timing. Lord, we thank you uh, for being with our members. Lord, we lift up to you uh, the Reed family. Uh, Lord, as they uh, go through uh, the stress of Sarah's mom just continuing to decline, that you would give them grace. Encourage them as they're with uh, family worshiping this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray for your grace in Sarah's mother's life, that you would continue to um, just lead her, Lord, in what seems to be um, her last days, but Lord, that you would surround her by your people and by her family, and that, Lord, you would encourage and give grace uh, to her in her weakening body. Father, we also uh, do not forget to pray for Kimberly Finney's father as he continues to battle leukemia. We thank you for this last week that you guided them and that you are with the family. Uh, thank you for the encouragement that you've brought to them as they uh, work through these many things. Lord, that you would provide grace and strength. Father, we lift up those who are traveling this week from our congregation and all that uh, goes on in our families in a, in a given week, we lift them to you. We pray for our families uh, starting school, that you would be with them, that you would encourage them. Father, that you would strengthen them, uh, give uh, mothers particularly the strength to um, get back on a schedule after all the summer festivities, uh, that Lord, as these homeschools start back up, or public school schedules or college, that Lord, you would give each student grace that they would see uh, that you are calling them to this task at this age of their lives, that as they learn about uh, your word and your world, that, Father, you would uh, work in each lesson to draw them close to you. Father, we thank you for what you're doing uh, in our midst. Uh, we continue to pray uh, for the closing on this building um, as we look to that this week. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of this. We thank you for its current owner, Billy Martin. We pray that you would bless him and uh, thank you for this process and how uh, relatively uh, easy it's been uh, compared to other transactions. We pray for your help there this week. Thank you for giving the elders and deacons wisdom in this process. Father, we pray for your wisdom in the days ahead concerning uh, this building. Father, we thank you for all that you're uh, doing uh, in and through our uh, intentions of uh, planting a church and all that uh, you are helping us with. God, would you bless those that are a part of that work, and Lord, that you would add to our number. We thank you for how you work, that you do not work on man's time scale, but you work purposely. And so we thank you for that. We thank you uh, for our brother, Tim Bullington, that's able to be with us this morning to proclaim again your gospel. We thank you for his work in your kingdom. We thank you for bringing him to be part of this team and to be obviously a friend of this church. And we thank you so much for what you're doing in and through him and Cindy. We pray continually for them, that you would provide for them in this time, that Lord, you would give uh, Tim great boldness as he comes uh, to the pulpit to preach your word. And Lord, may you uh, give us ears, not just to hear it, but to obey it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Tim, would you come? Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here today as we worship the Lord together. You know, when I was asked to preach this morning, I began to seek the Lord about how I could tie it in. I didn't want it just to be a disjointed message that really didn't fit in with where you guys have been. And so the Holy Spirit led me 
and I landed on the text that I'm going to be in today, and I pray that it speaks to your heart. So with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the uh, first two books of the Old and New Testament, Genesis and Matthew. And uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to flip over to Matthew and read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. So again, that's Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And we're going to consider the subject today, where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Stand with me out of honor and reverence for God and his word as we look at these two phenomenal passages of Scripture. The Bible says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, if you would flip over to Matthew chapter four and we'll read verses one through 11. The scripture says in Matthew 4, 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the glorious privilege and wonderful opportunity to share the word of God here with the brethren at the Gathering Church in Ash. I pray, Father, for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, but not only upon myself as the speaker of these words, but Father, I pray for the anointing of your Spirit upon the ears of all the hearers, that we would not just be hearing the word, but we would have the intention of doing the word of God, and that we would take great comfort in the fact that where the first Adam failed, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, prevailed. He triumphed, and he triumphed then, he triumphs now, and he will triumph forevermore, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we worship you, Lord Jesus, in the beauty of all of your radiant holiness and praise your holy name that you are our conquering king. I pray, Father, this morning that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart 
will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, to the end that someone today might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and those of us who are saved might just rejoice in the fact that where Adam and all of us have failed, Christ has never failed and never will. He prevailed and will for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Charles Dickens began his epic work, A Tale of Two Cities, with those now famous words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that particular phrase could be used to describe the two texts that I read from this morning, except it would have to be flipped, it would have to be turned around, because it was the worst of times in Genesis 3 when Adam and all of his progeny, including us, fell in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, but then it was the best of times when we see our Lord Jesus Christ, our conquering king, victorious over Satan in that wilderness temptation showdown. Uh, of course, we know that that culminated uh, with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And thank God it will be consummated one day when Jesus comes back and he is going to throw that old rascal into the lake of fire where he's going to burn forever and ever. Don't you look forward to that day, church? I mean, it's going to be a glorious day. I, I, I listened to a lot of guys over the years, and one of my favorite musicians is Keith Green. And Keith Green said it like this in his song, Dear John, A Letter to the Devil. He said, well, I believe in Jesus and what he said he's going to do. He'll stick an apple in your lying mouth and cook you in a sulfur stew. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what he's going to do to the devil, and the devil's going down for all eternity. But until that day happens... You and I have to struggle with sin every single day of our lives. Temptation is a daily aspect of our lives, and from the day we're born, and more particularly from the day we're born again, until the day we take our last breath on this planet. And you can say whatever you want to about Satan, but you have to give the devil his due. He is a persistent rascal, and he never, ever quits. It was Henry Law a 19th century preacher who wrote a book called The Gospel in Genesis, and he had this statement to make about the devil's ceaseless activity, and I want you to listen to what he had to say. He said, and I quote, he never slumbers, never is weary, never relents, never abandons hope. He deals his blows alike at childhood's weakness, youth and experience, manhood's strength, and the tottering of age. He watches to ensnare the morning thought. He departs not with the shades of night, by his legions, he is everywhere at all times. He enters the palace, the hut, the fortress, the camp, the fleet. He invests or infects every chamber of every dwelling, every pew of every sanctuary. He is busy with the busy. He hurries about with the active. He sits by the bed of sickness and whispers into each dying ear. As the spirit quits the tenement of clay, in other words, as someone is dying, he still draws his bow with unrelenting rage, unquote. Now that sounds awfully discouraging, does it not? Because it's what we have to deal with on a daily basis in spiritual warfare. And, and it is discouraging. And for a while this morning, the message will get even a bit more discouraging as we go back and look at Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. But folks, don't give up on the message because the best is yet to come. As the old country preacher said, you got to plow through the salad in order to enjoy the cake, right? So, so, so we're going to start back here in Genesis 3, and we're going to see Adam's failure, but then we're going to see Christ's triumph in Matthew chapter 4. So where Adam failed... 
Christ prevailed. Now, in going back to Genesis 3, and go ahead and turn back there if you're, if you're not there already, I'm not intending to uh, go over much ground that Case, Pastor Kaysen has already very adequately and capably covered. That's not my intention at all. But I am going to go back and briefly show you this fall again to show the stark contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. So let's go back briefly to Genesis chapter 3, and let's take a look at these verses, and, and we're going to start in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden? You know, it's just incredible when you look at that, that Satan tried to get Eve to doubt the faithfulness of God. He tried to get Eve to doubt the love of God toward her and Adam. And he tried to get Eve to doubt the very faithfulness and veracity and truthfulness of the word of God when he said, has God indeed said? And so he started trying to plant doubt in Eve's mind. And unfortunately, we're going to see that as you already know, that he was successful. Move to verses 2 and 3. The scripture says in verses 2 and 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve responded to Satan's insinuation that God's word was not true by instead of rejoicing in the abundant provisions that God had given her and Adam. I mean, after all, folks, he had given them the entire garden except for one tree, right? I mean, everything in the garden was theirs except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but she diminished God's gracious provision, and she not only did that, but she added to the prohibition when she said, neither shall you touch it, making it seem to be even worse than it actually was. And so he's already thrown that bait out there, and unfortunately, she is going to be deceived by him and take it. Let's keep going. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Direct contradiction to what God had told them. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent continued to work his craftiness like the devil that he is, again, getting her to doubt the love of God and the faithfulness of God and the veracity of God's word. And man, she's falling for it, hook, line, and sinker, instead of remembering the loving words that her heavenly father has spoken to her and Adam. So let's see what happens here in verses six and seven, as you already know. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so Eve succumbed to the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, she, she succumbed to the lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she succumbed to the pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And Pastor Kaysen, I believe, very astutely pointed out a few weeks ago in his message from this passage that Adam was, was just standing there passively by. Adam was there the entire time this was going on. And how many times did he open his mouth? Not one single time. Not one single time did he exercise the headship that God had given him. Not one single time did he exercise his dominion that God had given him over that garden and over everything there, including, by the way, that serpent who came into the picture. And as a result, he fell. 
And so when he fell, we all fell. It's known in theological circles as the federal headship of Adam. Adam fell, we fell with him, and the rest is history. And the only one who has escaped that curse of sin in the human flesh is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the story there in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, can really be summed up in three simple phrases, the test, the temptation, and the tragedy. The test, the temptation, and the tragedy, because it's tragic that Adam fell and did not pass his probationary period. But now let's shift over to Matthew chapter 4, and let's see where the first Adam failed, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, prevailed. And the first thing I want you to notice there, and we're going to group it around three points. We're going to look at the test, and we're going to look at the threefold temptation, and then we're going to close out with the triumph. First of all, let's notice the test and go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Are you following me? Say amen. All right. Okay, here we go. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, Matthew says in his account here that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. It's interesting that if you read Mark's account, Mark says he was driven by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. The Greek word that Mark uses is the word ekbalo, and it means literally to be driven or to be forced. In other words, this was something that was compulsory on Christ. And so R.C. Sproul in his uh, uh, commentary talked about some things on this. And uh, the first thing I want to uh, talk about is the necessity of Christ going through this test. Dr. R.C. Sproul said this, both Adams were subjected to a probationary test to see if they would achieve obedience and righteousness. For Christ to redeem us as the second Adam, he had to be put to the test. Like the first Adam, he was placed on probation and he could not fail his test. So the first thought that stands out to me in this time, in this test, was that it was necessary that Christ go through this experience. Second thing that I think we need to realize about this test is it's very easy for a test or a trial to turn into a temptation, right? It's very easy for a test or a trial to turn into a temptation. How do we know the difference? How do we know whether it's a test from God or a temptation from the evil one? Well, James 1 answers that, does it not? That when it becomes an enticement towards sin, it ceases to be a test from God and becomes a temptation from the enemy of our souls. And so this test by God then becomes this temptation from uh, the enemy, uh, from Satan. A third thing that we need to realize about this test is that temptation often comes after a significant victory in our lives. Have you ever noticed that? That temptation often comes after a significant victory in our lives. What happened with Jesus in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the voice of the Father came from heaven saying, come on with me, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this was the inauguration of Christ's messianic ministry. And right after that significant victory, you move from chapter three into chapter four. And guess what? The Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember when the children of Israel were delivered from the bondage of Egypt after 430 years? Remember that? Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. God brought those 10 miraculous plagues upon them, disastrous for them, by the way, the Egyptians. And Pharaoh finally let them go. But guess what? Not long after they got out of town, they looked in the rearview mirror, and guess who was right behind them? 
Pharaoh was, right? And so the victory didn't last long for the children of Israel before they realized that Pharaoh was right on their heels. Remember Elijah? Elijah on Mount Carmel in chapter 18 of 1 Kings? He stood up against 850 false prophets of of Baal and, and the groves. 850 men. And God wrought a great victory that day in Elijah's life, right? But guess what happens in 1 Kings 19? Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel, and Elijah starts running for his life. Folks, he stood up against 850 men and then ran from one woman. You say she was a mighty mean woman. Yes, she was. (laughs) Okay, I get that. She was a mighty mean woman, but he ran. And he ran like a scalded dog and wound up under a broom tree, a juniper tree, said, take me, Lord. I'm no better than my father's. He was ready to die. But it's a reminder to us that often after those mountaintop experiences, you better look out, brothers and sisters, because there is coming a valley, and that valley will be a lot deeper and a lot darker and probably a lot longer than that time you had up on the mountain. And so Jesus is an example for us to to remember that, that temptation often comes after a significant victory. And then one other thing I want to point out about this test before we get into the threefold temptation, and it's this, that the contrast for this test could not have been more stark. Think about it. Adam was tested in a lush, perfect, sinless environment. Jesus was tested in a barren, imperfect, and sinful environment. R.C. Sproul in his commentary talked about the vast wasteland that basically where this took place, this wilderness, it was rugged. It was nothing, there was really nothing there that you really wanted to be a part of as a human being. And that's where the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into that wilderness to be tempted by the devil, while Adam, on the other hand, was in a perfect sin-free environment and failed. So let's see how Jesus did in this threefold temptation. So keep following along with me in the Word of God, and let's get into this threefold temptation. Here's temptation number one, turning stones into bread. Look at verses two and three. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now after arriving in this barren, desolate place, Jesus was prompted by the Spirit of God to fast for a supernatural period of time for 40 days and 40 nights. If you know your Bibles, you know there's only two other individuals in the Scriptures that fasted for a 40-day period of time. That was Moses when he got the law from God on Mount Sinai, and that was also the prophet Elijah. But other than that, we don't know of anyone else who's done 40 days and and 40 nights. And, and, And that's incredible, is it not, to think about. Think about fasting for 40 days. I, now, I'm not able to fast now at this point in my life because of medical reasons, but in the past I fasted, but you know the most I've ever fasted was three days. And, I, and I'm sorry to say that, that, that the most I could do was three days. I made a covenant with my youth pastor in the panhandle years ago, and we fasted for three days, and we were the biggest babies you've ever seen about it. I mean, we were constantly whining about how hungry we were and, uh, and how, when was this three days going to get over with, and, and it was brutal. And, uh, and, and so, but here's Jesus, and Jesus went for 40 days without food, and the devil came at him with what seemed to be on the surface merely physical. Use your divine power to turn these stones 
and the bread. Now, let me ask you a question before we keep moving on. Was Jesus hungry after going 40 days and 40 nights without eating? Some of you are hungry right now, right? You're saying, man, I hope he hurries up and wraps this up so we can go to lunch. I get it. I get it. We get hungry between meals. And if you're a teenager, that's multiplied exponentially, right? And here's Jesus, not going 40 minutes or four hours or four days, but 40 days without food. And so the temptation was, was very real, but I want you to understand there's more to this temptation than just merely the physical. Just as Satan cast doubt on God's word with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he's doing the same thing here to Jesus. Remember the father had pronounced at Jesus's baptism, this is my, what? Beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so Satan's trying to manipulate the mind of Christ and he's going, well, listen, you know what? If you're his beloved son in whom he's well pleased, then why is he going to let you stay out here and starve in the wilderness? Why is he driving you out here? I mean, after all, he fed the children of Israel manna from heaven. He gave them enough for five days, and then on the sixth day, he gave them enough for two days to cover the Sabbath. And he took care of his kids. He took care of Elijah, fed him with a raven. Why isn't he taking care of you? Why isn't he going to do this? So, so if he's not going to feed you, then Jesus command that these stones be turned into bread and satisfy yourself and use your power for your own needs. But Jesus, listen to me, on an empty stomach did not succumb to the tempter while Adam on a full stomach succumbed to the tempter. That's a, that's a great thing that we need to remember. Adam on a full stomach, everything at his disposal succumbed. Jesus here, 40 days without eating, did not give in to the tempter's snare. Look what he said. Look at verse 4. Here it is. But Jesus answered and said to him, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by what? Say it out loud. Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil came at Jesus to doubt, Jesus's wor- to, to doubt God's word, but what did Jesus do in response? He used God's word against the enemy of his soul and our souls. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus did not live for himself. He lived for his father. He did not live to satisfy his own needs, but he came down from heaven to do the will of his heavenly father, and he refused to get sidetracked by the enemy in this first temptation. He didn't yield to the tempter or to the temptation even after 40 days with nothing to eat. But let's move on to the second temptation and take take a look at it. And it's where he was tempted to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The devil somehow transported Jesus from where they were out in the wilderness to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, if you're scared of heights, you need to take this in. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there was a 450-foot drop from the pinnacle of the temple to the Kidron Valley below. Now, to put that in perspective, That's about 45 stories high. 
That's way up there. Folks, I don't like being on my roof. I don't like heights that well. Uh, some of these mountains scare me, just driving up and down them. But you're talking about 450 feet up on the pinnacle of the temple, and, and Satan comes at him, and he not, only, he not only came at him and tried to get him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, but he tried to use Scripture in appealing to Jesus to do this. In fact, the devil quoted from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But I want you to hear me. He conveniently left part of it out. He didn't quote the whole verse. In fact, listen to Psalm 91, 11. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. That's what, the, that's what the verse says. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. But Satan didn't quote that last part of verse 11. He twisted the scriptures, just like false teachers do in our society, to their own destruction. Amen? He twisted the scriptures to his own destruction. And, uh, and he, did, he not only didn't quote all of the verse, but listen, more importantly, the whole point of Psalm 91 is not to tempt God. The whole point of Psalm 91 is to trust God. You know how Psalm 91 starts out? Some of you know this verse by heart, Psalm 91.1. You know it? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Let me say that again. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Folks, that's not tempting God. That's trusting God. And Satan was trying to twist the scriptures to get Jesus not to trust the Father, but to trust himself. In fact, he's, he's kind of manipulating Jesus' mind in a different way than the first temptation. The first temptation, he was saying, hey, Jesus, you know, if God really loves you, if you really are his only begotten son, and if you really are the Messiah, and if, and if, he really, if you really are the one that he really deeply, truly loves more than anything or anyone else, then take your divine power and turn these stones into bread. But here he says, okay, Jesus, if you're not going to use your power to turn these stones into bread, then why don't you place yourself in the hands of the Father? Here's what I want you to do, Jesus. I want you to take a flying leap off the pinnacle of this temple and just trust God to send his angels to reach out and catch you and just bring you safely down to earth. Because after all, if you really are the beloved son in whom he's well pleased, he's going to take care of you and he is going to do this for you. And again, just putting all of this, uh, just twisting all of this um, around on Jesus. John MacArthur talks about how Jesus responded. And listen to how Jesus responded, though, uh, when Satan's trying to get him to jump off the, temp off the pinnacle of the temple, and he's trying to get him to start this messianic thing out with a, with a sensational bang. Look at this verse in verse 7. Jesus said to him, it is written again, say it with me, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Amen? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. John MacArthur pointed out at least four reasons why Jesus refused to enter into this spectacle with the devil. Here's number one, and I want you to take this one to heart. Any sensationalism inevitably is frustrated by the law of diminishing returns. In other words, people are never satisfied. Do you understand that? You get that? If Jesus jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and the angels did come and catch him and bring him down to earth and other people saw that, they'd go, man, look at that. 
But you know how long that would last? Not very long. In fact, you remember later on in Jesus' ministry, he took a small boy's lunch of five loaves of bread and two fishes and fed how many people? Over 5,000 and had 12 baskets of fragments left. You know what the scripture says after that? They followed Jesus all the way across to the other side of the sea because they had turned the Messiah into a carnival sideshow and Jesus was going to have nothing to do with it. People are always wanting more. If you show them something, they're always going to want more. And by point of application for the church, if you use a dog and pony show to bring people to church, there is no stopping point. You will have to use bigger ponies and bigger dogs all the way through your ministry in order to get them there. We had a church down in Central Florida that gave away a car to someone on a particular Sunday. Well, granted, they did have thousands there that Sunday. Who wouldn't want a new car, right? What are you going to do next Sunday? Give away a house? You see, there's no stopping point for that nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. We don't need anyone but Jesus. Amen? And I'm not trying to be simplistic. It's the truth. Here's the second reason MacArthur said Jesus refused to participate. No matter how noble and how important we may think our reasons are, to test God is to doubt God. And that's true. To test God is to doubt God. It's really not taking him at his word. And Jesus was always going to take the Father at his word. Number three, to have tested the Father by putting him under pressure to provide by extraordinary means, especially a means of Jesus' own choosing, would have been for the Son to put his judgment and will above the Father's, something Jesus would never do. Remember what Jesus said in John 5.30? He said, he said that he can, he can of his own self do nothing. He said, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And then finally, number four, it would have also questioned the Father's gracious prov providence and love for him. Jesus didn't take the devil's bait on temptation number two. He came back at Satan with the word of God. But now, let's look at temptation number three, because the devil as I said before, is persistent, and he's not quitting yet. The third temptation is to bow down and worship the devil. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Somebody said, where is that? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say, and where Scripture is silent, we need to keep our mouths shut. And so we're not going to speak where Scripture doesn't speak. We don't know what mountain Jesus, uh, Satan took Jesus up on. doesn't really matter. And it says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Can you imagine that? Satan showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, that may have been just present tense. If it was present tense, it was pretty much Rome. But knowing Satan, he probably went past tense all the way back to, he may have went all the way back to Mesopotamia, but he probably went to Egypt and then, and then he went to the, the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then now the Roman Empire, which dominated the entire known world at the time of Christ, showed him all of these kingdoms and all of their glory. And he said, I'm going to give these to you, but there's one itty bitty catch. He said, you got to bow down and you got to worship me. Now, you may be sitting out there arguing that these kingdoms weren't Satan's to give to start with, but I think you're ignoring two things that are much more important. Number one, the Bible does say he's the lowercase g God of this world, 
The Bible does say that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And, and secondly, and I think more importantly, is he was never, ever going to deliver on his promise because Satan's promises are empty promises. He is a liar and the father of lies, and you and I should learn to never believe anything that comes out of his mouth. Don't believe him. He's a liar, and he's lying to Jesus. And, and furthermore, folks, if Jesus had taken that bait, if Jesus had succumbed to this temptation and said, you know what? I can, I can shortcut the cross. I don't have to go to the cross. I, I can have all the kingdoms of the world right now. That would have nullified our salvation, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins, and eternity is lost for us because our Savior did not fulfill the mission that God sent him to. Aren't you glad that he didn't take that bait? He didn't take, he didn't take that bait at all. And furthermore, as, as God's son, God's son all of the kingdoms of the world are going to be given to him. They're going to be given, but listen to me, not out of his unrighteous disobedience, but out of his righteous obedience. Philippians 2, remember what it says? He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him. And given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus knew that if he obeyed the Father and did the Father's will and went through the agony of the cross, there would be the ecstasy of everything in this entire universe becoming his, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Thank God. Thank God for Christ. And so, so Christ isn't buying any of this at all. And I want you to look at his response. Look at his response in, verse, in chapter 4 and verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. One translation I read says, be gone. Some says, get behind me, Satan. You can use whatever one you want. I like be gone. But the New King James says, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Quoting this time from Deuteronomy 6.13 and Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So three times Satan came at the Lord Jesus, right? Turn these stones into bread, and Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and verse 3, second time, Satan comes at him and tells him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and then misquotes Psalm 91 as justification for such a sensational act. And Jesus responded with the word of God from the book of Deuteronomy. And then one final time, Satan comes at Jesus and says, all these kingdoms I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus quoted the word of God again Three strikes, and the devil was out because of Jesus, the incarnate word, quoting the living word of God back at the enemy of his soul. Which leads me to the last point in this message, and that's the triumph. Let's keep going in this text. The triumph of the Son of God. We, we read in Genesis 3 that the first Adam fell and he failed, and he fell, and all humanity fell with him. But that's not the case with the last Adam, is it? 
the last Adam succeeded, where the first Adam failed. I want you to think about this for a minute before we get into verse 11. Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent's temptations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it wasn't like Eve is the one who did it and Adam was, un, was an unfortunate recipient of her mistakes. No, Paul answers that later in 1 Timothy 2. Paul told Timothy that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Adam stood by passively and did nothing during that entire time, but he was guilty as homemade sin, as an old preacher would say, right? He was guilty, 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 guilty. And Adam and Eve gave into the lust of the flesh, they saw that the, food, the, the, the fruit was good for food. They gave into the lust of the eyes, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and the pride of life, that it would make them wise. In fact, to quote the words of the serpent, it was going to make them like God himself. Satan used those exact three tactics again on Christ, if you think about it. Think about this. What was the first temptation? To turn the stones into bread the lust of the flesh, and Jesus did not bite, <laughs> literally. Second temptation, get up here and jump off the pinnacle of the temple, the lust of the eyes, Jesus refused. And then the third one, all these kingdoms I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me, the pride of life, and Jesus refused every time turning the enemy back. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like what James 4, 7 tells you and me to do in spiritual warfare. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you know what our main weapon in our warfare is? The word of God. The word of God. And, and Jesus wielded it successfully against the enemy, and so can we if we will. What a contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. You ever thought about that? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Follow me. Follow me with this, and I promise you I'm almost through. The first Adam was in a beautiful, sinless environment and succumbed. The last Adam was in a barren, sinful environment and succeeded. The first Adam was full and went away empty. The last Adam was empty and went away full. The first Adam heard the, voice, heard the word of the Father, but heeded the voice of the serpent and failed. The last Adam heard the voice of the serpent, but heeded the word of the Father and prevailed. The first Adam is the representative of all fallen men. The last Adam is the representative of all his elect, all who believe on him and in him and trust him. Thank God for the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And I'll leave you with one final thought to think about in this text. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him. Now we know that wasn't permanent, right? Because Jesus engaged in warfare against him all through his earthly ministry. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I want you to think about this as we close. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3, and it's ironic, Pastor Quinn, that the question was about the cherubim. God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, as Caden very capably said last Sunday, east of Eden. They had to get out. And he put cherubim there. Now, whether it was one angel or more than one, it doesn't really matter, but at least one was there, maybe more than one. But he put angels there, right, to keep them out. Flaming sword. They could not go back into the garden. But here, the scripture says that an angel, while an angel kept Adam and Eve out, here, 
when Jesus victoriously conquered Satan in the wilderness temptations, angels came and ministered to him. Now follow me. Angels came and ministered to him after this temptation. Angels came again and ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in earnest agony over the fact that the very next day he was going to become sin for us on that cross. Angels came and ministered to him, rolled the stone away, and he came up alive. Our Savior is alive. There were angels there when Jesus ascended back up to heaven. And when Jesus comes back, get this church, he is coming back and he said it over and over and over in numerous parables. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory with all his holy angels, he's coming back with his angels. And that time when he comes again, it's not going to be to keep us out of paradise. It's going to be to welcome us in. Man, what a Savior. What a Savior. First Adam failed. And if it hadn't been him, it would have been you or me. But thank God, where the first Adam failed, the last Adam prevailed. Thank God for our conquering king. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for Jesus. Wouldn't be standing here today preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ without him. I'd either be in hell or be well on my way. But I'm so thankful that you rescued me. So thankful that you translated me, transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your dear son. And it's all because our savior was victorious that he prevailed where the first Adam failed miserably. Lord, I'm grateful that Christ triumphed over Satan. I'm grateful that he triumphed over sin. I'm grateful that he triumphed over death. And I'm grateful that he is going to triumph for all eternity. So Father, I pray that each one of us in here today has put our faith and trust in him, that we've turned from our sins and even turned from our good works. And we've turned to Christ alone. And if not, that there would be someone today who the Holy Spirit would supernaturally draw to the feet of Christ. Think about the, the state of their souls apart from Christ, that they cannot and will not ever achieve righteousness and obedience apart from the one who's already done it, and that's Jesus. So Lord, be glorified in our lives as we ponder these things, as we meditate on these things now and use them to drive every one of us to the feet of Christ and take refuge and comfort in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.